to the altar if you'd like, or you can stay where you are, whatever you want to do. I just want you to listen to the loud silence of the voice of God saying, why is there not more room in your heart for me? Is it too crowded? What do you have to let go of? The most obvious is sin. I don't want to hurt anybody. But it hurts the Savior. Because <laughs> it separates you whom he loves from him. And we cannot be fully useful and empowered. We cannot mock the Holy Spirit. We quench him through sin. These are desperate times. The world has got to see the Lord Jesus in us. He has to see surrender. They, the world has to see surrendered and sanctified lives. It's not an option anymore. We've been quite careless about our lifestyle. The problem is not politicians. It's the church. Salt and light. In large measure, we've lost our Savior, but it's not too late. We can be revived again. We can be a force to be reckoned with. We could be the light that shines in dark places. We could make a difference. And it starts with powerful, authentic prayer. A lady called me today, not knowing who else to call, about a terrible automobile accident in which a two-year-old was killed, mom critically injured and taken to hospital, all kinds of upheaval and disarray. Friends and coworkers of the mom who lost the two-year-old said, we've got to pray, we've got to get people praying. And this lady said, I will immediately call Sagemont Church. They will pray. What an honor to be known. <gasps> Call Sagemont Church. They will pray. The need will appear on the prayer list by tomorrow. We've taken care of it, and we will stay in touch with the city. But I thought, of all things to be known for, where do I go for help? I need help beyond myself. I need help from on high. <gasps> Those people, I don't go to their church. I need what they offer. I need who they have. They will pray. Oh, my. What a distinctive noun. Till the time of the Lord return, returns for us to cultivate. So I want to give you a chance now and myself. I'm going to kneel at the altar. You're invited to do whatever you want. <clears throat> I want to ask God to overshadow me. I got a real problem. I don't have a heart for what he has on his heart. And I don't know how to get it. It can't be by force of will. I don't have a heart for lost people like he does. I don't have a, a heart for service and sacrifice. I don't. I don't have a heart for the disciplines of the Christian life. You may think I do, but I do not. I don't have a heart for the word of God like I would like. Isn't that something for a guy like me to say? I'm just telling you these things are spiritual. They're contrary to my nature. Don't you see? I have to be overshadowed. I don't want to try harder. I want to be overwhelmed 
by the Spirit of God. I want him to come upon me. I want him to transform me. I want him to make me a powerful, useful instrument. I want his spirit to be unquenched in my life. It's not that I'm engaged in behaviors I have to be ashamed of. It's worse than that. It's attitudes, which I'm not even fully aware of. A behavior is out there. It's externalized. Maybe you can cease it. No, but it's a heart issue. I don't have the kind of heart I want. I want the heart of Jesus, and I don't have his mind. Do you worry about things? I worry all the time. Do you know sometimes I worry so much I could feel my skin burning? Isn't that a terrible thing? Sometimes my wife says, you're, you're blotchy, what's up? It's an anxiety reaction. Is this, is this the mind of Christ? I'm not ashamed to tell you this because because you're the same. Don't, do you understand what I'm getting? I am fully saved and redeemed. I have no doubt about my salvation. But a blotchy face due to anxiety is not going to persuade someone out there that the Prince of Peace gives peace. I, can, I don't know what to do about it. I'm a counselor. I don't know what, I don't want to read any books. I want to be overshadowed by the Prince of Peace. Don't you see? We need Holy Spirit produced things in this day, not things of our own invention and imagination. So, all that to say, would you please do what I'm doing? We're all the same. In our quiet time, let the Holy Spirit point out what's in your life now crowding him out. How do you have to be overshadowed and overcome so that the light of the Lord Jesus is more evident, so that it's a life that demands a question, why are you the way you are? How could you be this way in this day? What have you discovered that I do not have? Ask God to give you a life that demands a question. That's what I'm praying. Let's take a few minutes and beseech the Lord. Do you know why you can have Jesus? Because his father gave him. That's why you could have him. And do you know why the father gave him? Because the father wants you and I to have his best. And Jesus is the best he has to offer. Jesus is the Father's solution, best solution to our worst problem. The economy? No. People say the next president will be elected on the basis of the economy. Oh, God have mercy. That's not the issue. What about morality? What about ethics? What about the life of the defenseless unborn? The economy? Would you exchange a baby's life for a profitable portfolio? 
The economy is not our worst problem. It's sin. The economy doesn't separate us from God. Sin does. And if separated from God, you are without everything needful for life. So the Father sent his best for our worst problem. He sent one to solve the separation problem due to sin. And he foreshadowed foreshadowed it all with uh, a system of old consisting of priests from a tribe called Levi offering sacrifices specifically for sin. God did this. But, 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 But it's only a foreshadowing. It's only meant to be a sign pointing to the far better high priest. The writer of Hebrews wants us to persuade us of that. Tonight, let's be persuaded. In this letter of better Hebrews, that Jesus is far better than any other high priest. To do this, the writer has given us Hebrews chapter 5. I'd like to talk through it for a few moments. Hebrews chapter 5. In verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The high priest in Israel of old was appointed, as it says, by God as a mediator, someone who stands between two parties. His task was to deal with anything that separated the people from God. And the very existence of this ancient priesthood offering sacrifices for sin is evidence of human estrangement from the divine. None of this would be necessary. A mediatorial system, someone to offer sacrifices in the gap between creature and creator, none of it would be necessary if creature was rightly aligned with creator, but we haven't been since Genesis chapter 3. We've been estranged from God. The priesthood and the whole system of sacrifices for sin is an evidence of our estrangement from God. And it's also an evidence of the grace of that God against whom we have sinned. That he would have made a provision for sin. It's amazing grace. He could have dismissed us. (laughs) eradicated us and started fresh. Long-suffering creator has invested in us and made a provision to redeem us. And so then on behalf of the people, his appointed priests offered, as it says, both gifts and sacrifices for sins, but I tell you, Jesus is better. Why? 
he offered himself. He is both the high priest and the sacrifice. He's the offering and the offerer. He's a far better high priest. But why didn't God use angels to mediate the problem between us and he? Why didn't he use angels to bridge the gap? It's because they can't relate to us, nor we to them. Angels are not like us. We don't share the same nature. It's entirely different. So God appointed instead a human, a thoroughly human priest, because, as it says in verse 2, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Don't want to offend you, but that's us right there. You can pretty it up all you want, but that's us, the ignorant and misguided. Well, the divinely appointed human priest can deal gently with one such as us since he himself is also beset with the same kind of stuff. Aaron is an example, a high priest. Moses was called up, can you imagine? On a height to receive the commandments of Almighty God reflecting his moral character. While there, Aaron gave in to the people and fashioned into the form of a calf, a golden calf, uh, an, an alternative object of worship for the people. This is the high priest in Israel. On top of this, when Moses comes down and finds out about it, you know this, Aaron gives him a lame excuse. Remember what he said? What about, they, uh, you know, we just, they brought the stuff, the gold, the earrings, we just, you know, we threw it into the fire and this, uh, this like, this, this calf came out. That's the high priest. Let me tell you something. A man such as Aaron could really sympathize with human weaknesses. Could he not? He is one of the ignorant and misguided, beset with weaknesses, as it says himself. And to remind that human high priest of who he was, <clears throat> God gave him two things. One was a breastplate on which was imposed 12 precious stones on which was engraved on each uh, a name of each of the tribes of Israel. And on his shoulder straps also 12 stones each, again engraved with the names of each of the tribes of Israel. A reminder to this human to be compassionate and gentle in dealing with the ignorant and misguided. He would carry them on his heart. And he was there to bear their burden. <sighs> Jesus is a far better high priest. He bore the scars of our sin. <clears throat> we sent him back to the Father that way. Brutalized. Scarred. He did it. He's a far better high priest. So compassionate. Understanding our situation. And yet, here's really why he's far better. No sin. All of this connection to the human experience, yet no sin. 
You see, the human priest had to do what Jesus never had to do. It says in verse 3 of the human priest, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. <gasps> Not Jesus. Do you see why we worship him and no other? No sin. What's more, verse 4, no one takes this honor, priesthood, to himself, but receives it when he's called out by God, even as Aaron was. It, it was disastrous in biblical times to usurp the role uh, of the high priest. I fear we're in more potentially disastrous days because in one way or another, ones are seeking to usurp the role of high priest Jesus. Promises, proposals, delusions of grandeur, power. I will, I can, I shall. Jesus is the Savior. Nobody else can save us. It's very, very serious to usurp the role of the Savior. We want our country, its populace, to beseech him to save us, not to usurp his role as deliverer. There is no hope of deliverance for us, not in the political system, not in better investments and all the rest, not in peace accords brokered through the United Nations. Are you kidding me? All these entities are usurping the role of the mediator. We must not hate these. We must pray and become so much more attractive that many more will say, give me Jesus. Everything else has failed. We're in such a good spot because everything else is failing. Isn't this good? We don't have to persuade people. of the irrationality of that which they depend on. God is helping us. There's nothing to depend on. There's no one to trust. You can't hang on to the things which we have with idolatrous worship depended on. We're not going to be the richest nation. We're not going to be the most powerful. Hooray! Let it go. These are all Savior substitutes. It was disastrous in the Bible when someone usurped the role of the high priest, a human. <gasps> How much more, Jesus? It's very serious. And, and this one, this Jesus, did, did, did you know he didn't choose all this? Look, verse 5, uh, so also Christ, he didn't glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but, but, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The Father ordained it. See where it says begotten? But wait, begotten? Wasn't Christ always? <laughs> what do you mean begotten? What does this mean? Well, one would think it's a reference to his birth. Could I suggest to you it's not? This quotation from Psalm 2 verse 7 is referred to by Paul in Acts chapter 13. And there he helps us to see this 
verse is connected not with the birth of Christ, but with the resurrection of Christ. Let me read to you Acts 13, verses 32 to 33. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, here we go, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. Paul is quoting the same psalm that the writer of Hebrews is. And here's the quotation. You are my son. Today I have begotten thee. What does it mean, begotten in association with the resurrection? In the resurrection, Jesus was birthed, revealed, confirmed, vindicated to be a better high priest than any other. Which other was raised up from death? You see? He's the object of worship. No one, nothing else. For he won victory over death. Begotten as the ultimate high priest, the evidence being resurrection. Just as he says in another passage, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. His priesthood is forever and if his priesthood is forever, your salvation is forever, if it is through him. That you don't need anything more for eternal security. It has nothing to do with you. Your eternal security is a function of the longevity of the one who offered it. How long is Jesus' priesthood? He is a priest forever. Therefore, you are saved forever. If you have received his priestly ministry. That's what it says. That says here according to the order of Melchizedek. Who's he? We'll talk about it later. For now let's just consider Jesus. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh. He offered up both prayers and supplications. Intense. With loud crying he wept. Tears. To whom? Well to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. He prayed, was heard, and died. Which leads to the question, in what sense then did God his Father answer his prayers? He died. He prayed... To be saved from death. But this word from, just the word from, in the original language, the Greek, means to be saved out of the ultimate consequence of death. He didn't pray to be spared physical death. He prayed to be spared the ultimate consequence of physical death. You know what that is? Eternal separation from the Father. And the Father answered. How? In the resurrection. Oh, yeah. He was heard. He was raised up from. What a marvel. Want to see another marvel? Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Oh, my. It's a marvel because he was always obedient to the will of the Father. And yet the special obedience needed to fully qualify him in our minds as the ultimate far better high priest. This he learned through the actual 
real experience of suffering. Do you suffer? Are you suffering now? You have a high priest who understands. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. What do you mean made perfect? I thought he was perfect. Yeah, but once again, the word in the original Greek here for perfect means the bringing of a person to the ultimate goal set for him by God. He was brought to completion. Jesus always was perfect, sinlessly perfect. But he was brought to the ultimate goal intended by his father when he came and suffered and died and rose up from death so that he could become to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest according to, here we go again, the order of this character, Melchizedek. So you would think we should know something about this guy, Melchizedek, right? I mean, this is the second time he's mentioned. But we don't find out much about him until you get to uh, chapter 7. What's up? I'll tell you what's up. The writer of Hebrews is not about to explain to the readers more about Melchizedek and how he typifies uh, the Lord Jesus. Why? Because they couldn't receive it. So instead, he rebukes them. Look at it. Verse 11. Concerning him, Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Why? Because the writer of Hebrews is a poor teacher or communicator? No. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. The writer of Hebrews is saying, the problem is not my mouth, it's your head, it's your ears. You cannot receive this. Why not? At some point, they close their ears to the message. That's why not. And in the course of things, they, become pro- they became progressively spiritually dull. <clears throat> little by little. Gradual decline. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. Now, I know this verse is typically taken, and it's valid as an application for those of us who are Christians to mature in the faith. I don't think that's the primary intent. Bear with me. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Look at the, the, the writer is writing to an assembly like this of people, primarily Jewish, almost exclusively Jewish. They had that in common, but this they didn't have in common. Some in the assembly were authentically converted. They subjected themselves to the high priestly, mediatorial work of Yeshua, the Lord Jesus. But others only professed to be there. They said, me too. I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? Sure, I'm a Christian. Everyone's a Christian. Isn't everyone a Christian? If you're not a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Jew, you're a Christian, right? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Sure, I'm a Christian. We go to church on Christmas, stuff like that. Yeah, I'm a Christian. But that's what's happening in America. Everyone's a Christian. Anytime they do a poll, everyone's a Christian. How come we're so messed up if we got so many so-called Christians? You kidding me? So that's what was happening. It was a mixed group. So the writer is saying, listen to me. You heard of all of this stuff. 
But it didn't take root by faith in your life. And as a result, though, by now, you ought to be communicators of these things. Someone has to back up and explain to you the elementary principles of the faith again because they never took root in your life. See, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness because he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You're not accustomed to the word of righteousness. You don't understand principles by which we can be right with God. Here's the principle. We're right with God by receiving the finished work of the high priest Jesus. You know what these people were doing? They were becoming dangerously tempted through persecution to go back to the old system. They said, we want guys like Aaron, offering animals and sacrifices and all that old stuff. <gasps> Do you need to have the elementary principles of right standing with God explained again? Don't you understand this? You said you were saved through faith by grace in his shed blood, and now you want to get under these works again? You want to establish your own righteousness through your own merit and good deeds, through your own old-time religion, through your own man-made traditions? Don't do it just because it's tough times, just because people don't like you, just because they're putting the heat on you. It's happening to us. Don't back down and don't back off and don't go backward. Go onward with Jesus. Say, you could have all that old religious stuff. Give me Jesus. You and I are going to taste opposition, the likes of which we never tasted before. It'll be great. Because we're way out of shape. We really, 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 really need to be spiritually toughened up. We really, really, really need to go deep and find out what's really ours. Jesus doesn't have us if the world can pluck us out of his hand so easily. That's what was happening here. He said, I could talk to you more about the deeper things in the Christian life, but you don't even get fundamental things. Even that hasn't changed you. Just because the rabbis are putting pressure on you for accepting Jesus as your Savior, in place of all their ministrations, you're about ready to abandon him. You don't have him. He doesn't have you. We can't go further. We got to back up. You ought to be able to propagate the faith by now, but you need fundamentals. You need to hear the gospel because the gospel has not been embraced by you. That's what's going on. Yeah. Mature believers discern good and evil. I got a grandchild. Five months old. Samuel. Cute kid. Even at five months, he spits out stuff that doesn't taste good. It's unbelievable. You develop these taste buds. You could distinguish what tastes good, what tastes evil. That's the metaphor. And uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying to these in the assembly who are not really believers at all, just calling themselves believers, he was saying you can't discern what's good and evil. I mean, everything tastes good to you. You can't spit out what's evil. What does he mean? It's just a metaphor. He's not talking about food. You know what's evil? Evil is man's attempt to be right with God. Good 
is God's means of being right with God. It is flat out evil for us to say, instead of your provision for my sin, I will work my way up to a level of what I think is acceptability. And he's saying to these people, you don't know that high priest Jesus is good. And all that other stuff is evil. Not in the sense that it's inherently evil. Evil in the, in the sense that you're opting for it as over against what all of it points to. You're going back to the shadow instead of the substance. But the substance is Christ Jesus. You see what's going on? So you have these Jewish folks, they had the priesthood, they had the sacrifices, they had the Sabbath, they had the temple, they had the ceremonies, they had the holidays. And they want to go back to all of that as the means of appeasing God. They just point to the one who fulfilled it all. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the Sabbath. Jesus is the, the, the focal point of all the feasts of old. Jesus does make us kosher. We don't have to go eat kosher food. Jesus makes us kosher. Don't you see? All those things are just object lessons. And these people were saying, yeah, yeah, we'll get back under that. We'll get back. We'll get back to the old system, you see. But it's not going to work because our best falls short of God's holy standards. And he has provided his best for our worst, our unholiness. And therefore, it's evil to turn from Jesus as Savior in order to choose another system of being right with God. So why am I talking about this here? Because I read some polls that are quite disturbing. A poll was done by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. And um, it revealed that most of those claiming to be Christians in America, most, believe many religions can lead to eternal life. A sizable, scary number of those claiming to be Christians say there are multiple ways to eternal life, including Islam. Good works. You want to hear this one? And even atheism. As long as you sincerely hold to that which you believe, God will grant you his favor, they say. Even if your belief is non-God, the God who ain't there will give you points, <laughs> apparently. These are people claiming to be, to be... Another survey asked people what they believe about who gets to go to heaven. Want to hear some answers? Whoever obeys the Ten Commandments will go to heaven. But, but, but don't you see, the law, it's good. It's, the Ten Commandments are wonderful. Reflection of the heart of God. Uh, but, but, but of them, uh, we read in Galatians chapter, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. You know what the commandments show us? It shows we don't do them. The Ten Commandments, there's nothing wrong with them. It points out what's wrong with us. The Ten Commandments are not a means of salvation. The Ten Commandments are a mirror of our need for a Savior. It's like a tutor leading us to Christ. Once you find Christ, you don't have to look any 
Ten command. Here's another another response uh, to the to the, to the question: Who gets to go to heaven? Whoever goes to church will go to heaven. All right, cool. Thanks for showing up. You're on your way. Whoever does more good things than bad things will go to heaven. What? 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 Does God have these like the divine scales? What? What? Whoever has not killed anyone or done anything really bad will go to heaven. Those are the answers given, not by pagans, but by folks identifying themselves as Christians. And so you see, the audience in Hebrews is no different than the audience in most churches today. It's a mixed assembly of the truly redeemed and those who just claim to be. It's wheat and tares. It's those who profess Christ and those who not only profess Christ, but possess Christ. It's a big, big difference. It's no wonder the church is not triumphantly on the march because we don't even know who the church is yet. Whose side are you on? Figure it out. That's important. Listen, if our sin is so hideous to God that he required nothing less than the death of his perfectly sinless son as the only solution. Don't you think we would be foolish to think that any human merit, system, or effort will suffice? Any system of salvation by good works trashes Christ's death as unnecessary. Why did he, in fact, have to offer up loud crying and tears? if we're good enough to get into heaven without him. We've all had our dose of good religion, good works, good intentions, good deeds, and all the rest. None of it's good enough. We would be better off crying out to the only one who is good, almighty God. What are we going to do? How can we interest people more in doing so, crying out to him? I don't know. But I know it's doable. And we got a small glimpse of it on Sunday. Pastor, you forgive me if I'm telling a story, really, that is, is yours to tell. But I'm going to do it anyway. In the, um, thank you all for helping Sunday. Such a marvelous effort to move chairs and boxes to the new building, done with such efficiency and fun, I think. But more was happening. The, many of you know this, but for those who don't, the driver of the truck, I don't know him, I'm just telling the stories. But I want to, because it's such a blessing to tell. The driver of the truck came from California with the chairs. One of our members, Randy Reed, buddied up next to him. He, the driver, uh, Felipe Romero, Felipe Romero, observed you. You thought you were just carrying chairs and boxes. <clears throat> you were about ready to carry him to the throne of grace because he saw smiles and unity. And uh, misconceptions about the church were dispelled. You didn't look like whatever he thought the church was. You looked a lot better. 
This created an atmosphere for conversation. Randy speaks Spanish fluently. The driver, Felipe, spoke Spanish. Randy Reed speaks Spanish fluently. Said to him in so many words, Felipe, if you died, do you know whether you would go to heaven? Felipe said, it's not possible. Impossible. Nobody could know. Randy said, no, you can. See, Randy is one of those Christians who would not have answered, <laughs> how do you get to heaven this way? He told him about the far better high priest, Jesus. Felipe said, give me Jesus. Radically saved. If you think about it all, there was delay in his coming and this, that, and the other thing, and what? What? We didn't go. Sage, my church is not in California, right, as a church? Not everyone here speaks Spanish. Many, but not every. We didn't go to him. God brought him to us to drive a truck with chairs. To be redeemed by the great Redeemer. So I thought, but what was it about Felipe that moved him to say, in so many words, give me Jesus? What? What? The Holy Spirit. Well, why don't we ask him to do it more? You have not. We have not, because we ask not. Why don't we ask for an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit on this nation? So that people line up at Sagemont Church to get in. They hear about Jesus. So it takes two things. <clears throat> we got to be ready, cleaned up on the inside, ready to tell the story. And people have to be stirred up with a hunger so as to say, give me Jesus. He is our only hope. Will you pray that? Soon we're going to be in our new building, one way or the other. It's going to be gloriously wonderful. What are we going to do with the building? Why don't we fill it? Why don't we ask God to fill it? Why don't we have to do more and more? Provide more and more opportunities, more and more services, more and more. Why don't we, why don't we go crazy? Why don't we ask God, fire us up. Make us burn with a passion which we do not possess. You see, overshadow us. I don't want to hurt anybody. I'm with you. What we do, we do so well Sometimes we don't even think about it. We do church so well around here. We do. <gasps> it's standard operating procedure. Why don't we ask God for the divine surprise? Not standard operating procedure. Out of the box, Holy Spirit fire. That spreads. The hunger that leads one to say, give me Jesus, 
has to be produced by the Spirit of Jesus, has to be called down by the people who follow Jesus. I want us to listen to the words of this song again. And as we do, pray, oh God, make me a willing servant. Make ones to be willing recipients who say, give me Jesus. Jesus.